0: listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.church. And uh, we are uh, in the book of Jonah today. I'm very eager to get into the text uh, with you. I think this is a very uh, exciting and important uh, and helpful and convicting book. So uh, if you have your Bible, get it out. We're going to be in it a good bit this morning. So let me pray for us uh, one more time, and then we'll jump into things. Pray with me. Father, uh, we come to your word uh, like we come to um, a bright light. It's the way that we see. We, we need to navigate our lives through what you've disclosed to us in this book. And uh, so we come uh, for illumination, to see what we couldn't see before. We come uh, to it like we come to a fire. We, we want to be warmed by it. We want our affections to be warm for Jesus. And, and your word aids in that. And so uh, we're, we're huddling around your word to be warmed by its heat and to uh, see the world and ourselves through its light. And we're asking you to, to accomplish the illumination and the, the warming by your spirit who comes alongside your word every time it's preached uh, to do his work. And so, Father, come. Come and uh, do unexpected things in our heart. Help us, uh, help us to, to grow in the image of our Savior. Help us to make sense of this short but uh, complex book. We just really need your mercy. And so we're asking for it today in Jesus' good name. Amen? Amen. Well, if you have ever... Uh, ridden in the car with me, which is a handful of you in the room. You know a couple things about me. Uh, the first of which is I am—how uh, do you say in English—a terrible driver. Uh, not very good at all. I'm—I'm I'm the guy. I've—I've I've been pulled over. Uh, you need to pray for me. Is what I'm saying. Multiple times in a day, I have been pulled over. Do you know that is—that's the worst feeling a human can feel. Uh, and I think I probably have some sin to deal with, with the Lord. So I'm a bad driver. Uh, the second thing you're going to know pretty quickly is that um, I am directionally challenged. I don't know where things are ever in my house, in my life, in my pockets, in the car. I don't know. I just don't know. So I'm just, I'm constantly I don't know why I'm this bad at life, but I am. I can't get anywhere without like if the global positioning system had not been invented, I would not be here today. Like physically, I wouldn't be at this church because I wouldn't know where it is. I, I am. uh, This is true to just kind of give you some perspective here. Until our pastor, Rodney Hobbs, moved from his house a few months ago, I was still GPSing to his house. I have known the man. Ten years, and I GPS to his house. So I, the, I have a disorder. Seriously, I don't know what, what's happening w- with me. Uh, GPS is my best friend. But the experience of me in a car without GPS, it sounds a lot like this. Uh, how did I get here? I, don't, I wanted to go to the mall. I'm in a cornfield. I don't understand how that thing happens. Uh, how, how did, how, what, at what point, what turn did I take that got me to... Where I'm at, I don't. I, I, when I started this journey, I did not expect to wind up here. Why am I here? That, that is what I feel all the time. Now, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because I think, in many ways, that's us. You know the feeling, right? It, not, it might not be like with maps and, and cornfields, but you know the, the feeling of finding yourself in uh, some really hard, confusing, not where you want to be places. And going, how did I get here? How did I wind up here? What choices did I make? What turns did I take that would that would have me arrive at this spot? You you may be there today, and maybe you're not uh, looking at a, a map that's confusing, or uh, you know, out out your window, but maybe you're you're staring at a broken marriage. And you're going, how did how did I wind up in this spot in this condition? Maybe for you, it's an addiction that has crept up on you, seemingly out of nowhere, or or. Or maybe for you, it's, it's none of those things. Maybe you're doing great on the outside, but inside, kind of when you look around and evaluate yourself there, you, you're realizing that like your, your appetite for God, your interest for God is just like miles away from where you wanted it to be. And you're just going, how did I, how did I arrive at this spot, this hard spot, this dark spot, this confusing place in my life? How did I get here? But here's the question. What if we could make sense of that somehow. Do you know what I mean? Like, what if we could uh, follow the map back to the wrong turn? Like, could that be helpful for us? I feel like that would be such a gift if we would be able to do that. And in some ways, the beginning of the book of Jonah is, is giving that gift to us. It's giving us access to that map today. As we watch this man defy his God, we get to see the turns he takes to get him there, three turns in fact, and as we watch him stray from God, and we will we 're going to be able to um, gain some insight into our journeys, hopefully so that so that we can be people who who stay walking faithfully with our god that 's what I want for us this morning. I hope that 's what you want for you this morning, and I think the Book of Jonah is going to help us in that, so we 're going to look at that in just a minute the the three turns that every heart takes when we defy our God, but first uh, we need to meet our man, meet the situation, kind of do some groundwork here. So let's start there. Uh, here we go. Uh, let's, let's get to know Jonah a little bit. Uh, what do we know about him? The short answer is not a lot. The, the Bible doesn't actually give us a ton about it. V- v- verse 1 says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. The end, right? That's, I mean, that's like, that's his bio. You, you get his name— one other time in your Bible. It's in 2 Kings 14, 25, uh, where it's, it's during the reign of Jeroboam, uh, the second king of Israel. And it says, verse 25, he, Jeroboam, restored the border of Israel from Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet who is from Gath-Hefer. Now, If that Jonah from 2 Kings is the same Jonah as the Jonah, Jonah, then that means that Jonah was a prophet of God prophesying somewhere around the mid 700s BC. So just kind of get yourself there. He's from a town, uh, Gath Hefer, which is about two and a half miles away from Nazareth. So that's, that's where he's from, and that's when he's kind of doing his work, mid-700s BC. You now know everything there is to know about Jonah. Congratulations. It's amazing. You can go home. That, th- th- that's really basically all that we get in the scripture about his biography. Now there is uh, one more layer that I think is worth taking a look at that's going to help color our story, and that's this. The only other thing we have to work with in the text is what his name means. Now, I want to stress this just a little bit because uh, it's not like in our culture. In Hebrew culture, uh, names carried a ton of meaning and weight. I mean, they were packed with significance. So I think it's worth taking a look at what his name means to see how God might be coloring the story for us. And when you look at his name, it's really fascinating. So the name Jonah, uh, the Hebrew word Yonah, uh, is just the simple word in Hebrew for dove. Did you know that? Just means dove. And, and, and that's a very interesting thing because of what doves were associated with in the Jewish mind. So for instance, the first time you ever see the word Yonah in scripture, it's not in Jonah, it's in Genesis. Genesis 8. Right? You, you probably are, are familiar with it. Where, where Noah sends out a Yonah, a dove, verse 10, out of the ark. And the dove came back to him that evening. And, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that, that the waters had subsided from the earth. So the very first use of Yonah or Jonah in Scripture, the whole Bible, was associated with being a messenger. Isn't that interesting? Like it, 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 it was sent to bring a message back to the folks on the ark. So that's Jonah, the messenger, but it wasn't just Jonah, it's Jonah son of Amittai. Now the word Amittai comes from this word meaning uh, trustworthy or faithful. So if you put that together, Jonah's name could be rendered as faithful messenger, which if that's true, I think is just hilarious right? That, the, that this book would open uh, like, like this. Here's a story of a guy named Faithful Messenger, who is neither faithful nor a very good messenger. I mean, that's, that's how the book opens. The uh, the Bible's funny in a lot of ways, and especially the, the, the book of Jonah, by the way. It's, a, it's written as a satire. A satire is a way to critique a person or a, or a concept by poking fun at it. Uh, so, if you find yourself wanting to laugh a lot in the book, that's actually appropriate. That's biblical. You should laugh. Okay? There's some funny things that happen. When Jonah's like uh, whining about a sunburn at the end of the book, uh, You should that's funny. He's like a baby. I, I love it. Okay. Now, now we're going to get to see if he makes good on his name throughout the book. I have a, you know, spoiler alert. He doesn't. But uh, let's get to the mission and see what's, what's going on. Let's orient ourselves. What mission does God give our faithful messenger? Verse 2, God says this: Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Now, now we're gonna see the significance of the city of Nineveh in a little bit. We're we're gonna look at that later, but for now, I just want you to notice this. This is a very ordinary way to introduce a prophetic moment in the Bible. If you've ever read your Old Testament, you're familiar with this sort of pattern of speaking. And every Jew listening, their ear would have known this kind of language. God speaking a command or an oracle to his prophet to go do something. Let me just give you a few examples to orient your ear. 1 Samuel 7, 4. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. 1 Kings 17, 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to Eliza. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Uh, Just a couple verses before that. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart and go uh, from here. Turn eastward and hide yourself in the brook Cherith. So the Jews knew how this thing went. You feel me? They were familiar with their Old Testament. There's a rhythm. There's a cadence to this. God speaks to the prophet, tells them what to do, and they know what comes next. What comes next? And the prophet did. The so-and-so went, so-and-so left, so-and-so uh, did what the Lord said. Every time that happens in the Bible, except this time. This time, the, the whole narrative flips. It's, it's entirely on its head, and the author really wants to drive this home. And so what he does to do that is he pairs each of the words in God's command with Jonah's response. I don't know if you notice that when you read it, but look at verse 2, arise go to Nineveh, Jonah arose and fled to Tarshish, right? Thank you for laughing. It's funny. It's sinful, but it's funny. Just saying. It's written in a way so you would know Jonah didn't just not do it, right? He like played opposite day with God, I mean, it is so far from what God was asking for, and Jonah is defying the Lord in the starkest way possible. And again, to drive this home, this moment is is so absurd uh, because of where Jonah is going. So just just think about this for a moment. God calls him to go to Nineveh. Now Nineveh, in relation to Israel, it's about 700 miles to the east, okay? Modern day uh, Mosul, Iraq. Uh, in case you were curious. And it said that Jonah headed to Tarshish. Now, most commentators think that Tarshish was a city on the southwestern corner of, wait for it, Spain, y'all. Spain. That's 3,000 miles away. From where Jonah is. To put that in perspective, that would be like God asking you to go to Destin, Florida, and you get in a car and drive to Anchorage. That's the equivalent. So just get that in your head. It's ridiculous. God said, arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish, 3,000 miles away from the Lord. It's an an amazing moment in scripture. Now, you read this, and the first question that I have when I read it is, well, what happened? Like, well, how did, how did that moment happen right there? How did it come to this? Because we know what the this is that it comes to, right? We have the gift of hindsight, we've read this book. Uh, he winds up in a fish belly, right? And, and you go, man, how did, what turns happened in your life that would get you wound up there? I mean, that is, that is a tough place to be for anybody. That's the question I ask, and so what I want to do for the rest of our time, now that we've oriented ourselves to sort of the context of the story, I want to spend time investigating the three turns Jonah takes that gets him into the belly of that fish. Today it's sort of like uh, we're going to do like an anatomy of, of defiance. What does it mean really to defy the Lord? And the first thing that we see is that defiance begins with doubt. Now, that's a weird way to put it, because if you know the story, you're like, "What? That uh, that word's not in here. What is that uh, about?" Jonah didn't doubt; he, dis- he just disobeyed God. He just went to to Tarshish. Well, that's the end of story. But th- but think about it: every disobedient act has an origin story, right? Like uh, what th- this is what Jesus teaches us: everything that that ends up at our hands starts in our hearts. There's an origin story to everything we. We do it, and all begins in our hearts. So how did it start with Jonah? Well, he doubted. What did he doubt? He doubted that the person and purposes of God were good. Jonah doubted that the person and purposes of God were, were good. Now, look, we're going to fast forward for a second, and we're going to look at chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4. It's after Jonah preaches uh, in Nineveh. The Ninevites repent. God relents from his judgment, and it says this. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish. Because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's going, I knew you'd do this. You always do this kind of thing, and I think it's a terrible idea. That's why I ran. This this verse is a huge gift to us because it gives us insight into what's happening in Jonah's heart. He ran because he thought what God was up to with the Ninevites was a terrible idea. Now, i got to give a little bit of credit to Jonah in, in this moment because if you know anything about the Ninevites, you know he's not without some good reason to feel this way. First off, uh, the Ninevites were terrible human beings. Uh, it, history, if history is accurate, they were just wildly brutal. In their military campaigns, the Assyrian army would, pardon me for the imagery, skin their victims, hang their bodies outside their city wall. That's, that's what they would do, just to like really lets you know this is what's coming for you. We have recorded in their history books that their kings, their rulers at the time, referred to their own selves as being the kings of the universe. I mean, isn't a little bit of wrath supposed to be heading their way, right? Surely like some of that is coming to them. Uh, Second thing, they're oppressing Israel at this time. These are not Uh, friendlies to Israel Uh, uh, just a a handful of kings ago in the uh, life of Israel they were exacting tribute from their kings so they're taking money from the people of Israel They're, they're making life hard for the people of God brutal making life hard for God's people and then last and probably biggest of all it's it's important to remember where we are in the redemptive story like think of the whole Bible for a moment there is a progressive journey that God is taking His people on in terms of redemption. like this is we 're not in the New Testament moment. we 're not at Acts two where the spirit falls, and, and the nations are getting saved, and like we 're not at great commission time, we're not at that at this point in redemptive history, think about we 're seven hundred and fifty years before Christ is even going to show up on the scene. at this point. God is pouring out his his redemptive purposes on one particular body of people, one ethnic group, the Jews. Like with, with very few exceptions in the Old Testament, and there are some, but with very few exceptions, God has chosen a particular people, a particular bloodline even, to say, these are the people that I'm gonna be doing my work in. You, not them. You, not them. That, that's, how, that's how God was operating in this moment in redemptive history. And Jonah, Jonah couldn't see what was coming with Christ. So uh, th- This is why I want to give him a little bit of credit. Like, it, like all the things that are about to unfold, he doesn't know that per se. He just knows the play they're running right now. We're running the Jewish play, right? And, and God, it sure seems like you're running a different play right now because I'm sniffing that you're about to extend mercy to a people other than my people. And that doesn't jive with me. It didn't compute with sort of his, his theology at the time. It's the same thing that happened to Peter, by the way, right? When you get to the New Testament, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to be crucified. What does Peter do? He goes, no way. No, hey, settle down, bro. Not my Messiah. My Messiah doesn't get crucified. We, we go conquer Rome. Like we go take over some stuff. That's what we do. See, Peter had the the same problem Jonah did. Peter Peter didn't even have a category for a dying Messiah. And Jonah doesn't have a category for this. God showing mercy to foreign nations who abused his people? No way. God doesn't do that. God smokes those people. He He doesn't pardon those people. His trust in God's person and purpose eroded. Do you see that? It was doubt, as trust in, in God's person and purpose eroded. And when trust gets eroded in a relationship, what happens? We lose our sense of safety with that person, don't we? And what do we do when we lose our sense of safety? We distance ourselves. That's what happens every time. Doubt leads to distance. Doubt leads to distance. Verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it and, and, uh, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. In just one verse, this phrase is repeated twice, away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah, it, when you think about him fleeing, he's not just fleeing to Tarshish, he's fleeing away from God. That's how you need to think about this. This is the pattern the Bible gives us for how defiance works. This is how we as people move away from God. When we grow skeptical about God's person and purpose, his presence doesn't feel like a safe place anymore for us. Like you were once a safe place, but you're not a safe place to me anymore because I'm skeptical about what you're up to. I'm skeptical about who you are. And it's been this way from the beginning, right? Maybe your mind's already going there. I mean, think about Adam and Eve in the garden right, they they begin to believe a false narrative about the intentions of God, and then what happens? They disobey God, and in disobeying him, they flee, such that God actually has to come and look for them and find them, Adam, where are you? He, I was hiding from you in the garden. They were hiding from God because they lost their trust in their God, they doubted his person and his purposes, and now there's no safety there. He's not a comfort to me anymore, he's a, he's a ghoul, he's, he's something I'm scared of, I run from him, I flee from him. This is the pattern. Doubt leads to distance. And, and how many of you know this is a description of how distance happens in, in all our relationships? And th- this is how it goes. I'll give you an example in my life. Me and Kelly, uh, we think counseling, like marriage counseling, is a really wonderful uh, tool that God gives uh, married people. And so we've been in it like from the jump. Like we did premarital, we got married, and just jumped right into marital counseling. Because we're like, oh, we're, we're train wrecks. We've got to figure this thing out. And uh, pretty early on in our counseling, uh, I, I I was in a kind of a weird place with her in particular where where I was just experiencing some of that distance. Uh, I was was feeling really reticent to um, disclose myself to her. Like I felt uncomfortable sharing like uh, my emotions or kind of like my state of being, or even just like details about my day. For whatever reason, I was just kind of resistant to her. And I remember sitting with the counselor, and I'll never forget the question he asked me, it changed my life. He said, Jimmy, can I ask you something? Yeah, he said, "Uh, What story are you making up about Kelly today? I thought, What an interesting way to to think about what I'm doing. What story am I making up about my wife? What is he getting at? He was getting at the fact that I was telling myself a different narrative about her words, her actions her intentions than she was intending. And because of that, she didn't feel like a safe place for me anymore. She didn't feel like a a place I could disclose myself to and trust myself to. And so so I retreated from her presence. I began to retreat from her. Doubt leads to distance. Do you see the connection? Doubt leads to distance. I'll give you one more example. Uh, I have um, a couple friends, a married couple, who at at one point, probably uh, over the past decade or so, Um, were a pretty prominent voice in the Christian community, like, globally. Uh, They had a pretty loud presence and and voice there. And now, today, they aren't walking with God uh, at all. They're not Christians. They wouldn't call themselves that. And I had a chance, uh, probably four years or so, to sit down with them and and just process that with them and hear why they left God. And you know what they said? You know what their answer was? Uh, The the husband talked, and and he said, "Um, I, I read the Bible. And the God that I met in the pages of the Bible, I didn't, I didn't like. I didn't like what he was up to in the Old Testament. I didn't like how he acted and talked. I didn't like his commands. I didn't like what he ordered folks to do. And so I didn't feel safe with him anymore, and I bailed. And so we're, we're out. We're doing our own thing now. You see, the, the progression, though, they, they doubted the person and the purposes of God, and it caused them to flee His presence. This is the pattern in life. One of the things I think this means for us is that walking with God demands a great deal of humility. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, you have to be able to look at really. Hard things in your life, things that have been brought by the hand of God, things that you don't understand, and you have to be able to say, I don't get it, but I trust you. I I trust your person, who you are, your character, and and I trust your plans, like what you're up to in my life, that you're still working for my good. I trust you, even though I don't get it. I I don't know why my loved one died, but I trust you and I know you're still up to my good. I, I don't know why we can't pay the rent this month. I don't know why, I don't have a good answer, but I, I trust you, and, and, I, and I know you're still up to my good. I, I, I don't know why you're asking me to forgive this person who has hurt me so bad, but I trust you, your character, who you are, and, and I know that you're up to my good in this. Walking with God demands a great deal of humility. And Jonah didn't have that. And Jonah didn't do that. He let his doubt about what God was up to with Nineveh push him to distance himself. And what happens next is what happens to all of us when we distance ourselves from God. We begin to descend. We begin to descend. Watch the word choice the moment after Jonah defies God. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them into Tarshish. Verse 5. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. And Then he was swallowed by a fish. And what does he do? He goes down into the depths of the sea. He prays in chapter 2, verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed on me forever, the moment Jonah decides to flee the presence of God, what happens? He sinks. Do you see that? Down and down and lower and lower throughout the whole first half of the book. That's the intentional language used by the author. And the author knows what he's doing. He's, He's teaching us something about what happens when we flee. When we flee from God's presence, we sink do you see that? This is what the Bible has been saying all along. It's Romans 1, right? You know, famous Romans 1 that talks about the humanity knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks. What do they do? They distance themselves from him. And what happens next? It says in the text, God gave them over to a depraved mind. He gave them over to the lust of their hearts. He gave them over to sinful passions. Down and down and down we go the moment we distance ourselves from God. That is the pattern in scripture. This is why massive, horrible, tragic, sinful moments never truly come out of the blue. That is a a very rare thing for them to, to just show up out of nowhere. That's not how these things go. They're usually a byproduct of a skeptical heart left unchecked for a very long time. That's how those moments happen. It was interesting to uh, hear Jeffrey Dahmer, the, uh, the serial killer, talk uh, back in an interview in the 1990s about how he wound up, where he wound up, on death row as a convicted serial killer, as a cannibal. I mean, it, he, it's as low as you can go. And do you know what he said? Do you know what his origin story for himself was? He said, this whole thing started when I began to doubt that there was a God. And if there is no God, I knew I wasn't accountable for my actions. And if I wasn't accountable for my actions, I could run to whatever my heart wanted. And I did. And the more I ran, the darker the things I wanted became. Doubt, distance, descent. Do you see it? I became skeptical of God, so I separated myself from him, and as I did, I went down to the pit. And some of you feel that this morning, right? You feel sunk, like sunk by sin, like you're in a a dark place with no way out. There's no way that there's this many people in the room and watching at home that that people in here are not feeling that. Sunk through a, a series of just terrible decisions one after another, sunk in depression, maybe, where you, you have been listening to the lie the enemy is whispering to you. God can't be trusted. He can't be trusted. He can't be trusted with your finances. So you need to take that loophole. You need to, you need to do that. God, God can't be trusted with the state of your marriage. But check that guy out. Check that girl out. God God can't be trusted with your suffering. You can't trust God with that. Let yourself go into bitterness. Release yourself to to spill over into hard-heartedness because he can't be trusted. He isn't up to your good. That's the voice. You can't trust his plan. You need to run. And maybe for you, it's sinking you. Or it has sunk you, and you're wanting to know, is there any help coming? Is there any help coming? The beauty of Jonah's story is it doesn't end with Jonah fleeing. We've read the book here. You know how this thing goes. Jonah fled from God. God didn't flee from Jonah. We read in verse four that he pursues this prodigal by sending a storm. It says, uh, "But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up." Now now Rodney's going to be talking uh, about God's pursuing grace in the storm next week, so Be here for that, I'm eager to hear uh, him teach that. But what I just want you to see today is the very God with, with the very wiring that he has, the very God that Jonah doubted, was the very God that because of his compassion, because of his great mercy, because of his slowness to anger, showed up to him with all of that compassion and all of that mercy to bring him back in spite of his rebellious running. And listen, just like God's compassion to the Ninevites, is a sneak peek of what's coming in the New Testament, right? Because we know what's coming. God's about to blow open the doors and extend grace and pardon and mercy to all the nations. He's about to invite all the nations in. Rodney told us last week that that we get to see all the nations in the end time story in Revelation. That's coming. In the same way that God pouring out his compassion in Jonah is a sneak peek into what's coming in the New Testament, God's compassion to Jonah is a sneak peek of what's coming in the person of Jesus. God made us and we fled from his presence. I mean, you know this about yourself, right? The the worst of us in the room, the best of us in the room, we all have Jonah hearts. We have all hopped on that boat heading for Tarshish. We're running as fast as we can from God, apart from God. We, we've instantly have been born with a mistrust and a distrust of him. We doubt his presence and his purposes and his plans, and we flee. We flee from Genesis 3 on, and every generation after that, up to today, up to you sitting here, has been fleeing. I don't know if you've thought about yourself in those terms. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not fleeing from God. That's exactly what the Bible says we do. Every time we don't entrust ourselves to him, every time we live in a state of panic and, and anxiousness, every time that we, we're backbiting and warring with each other, we're expressing the fact that we are actually Jonah in our heart. We flee. We run. God made us. We fled from his presence, and it could have been done just like that. You guys go have fun, right? I love what Rodney said last week. He's like, if, if I was God in the book of Jonah, this would be a really short book. God said go. Jonah said no. God killed Jonah. That's next page. Okay, we're on to Micah. But is that what God did? God didn't do that. And he doesn't do that with us either. He didn't just leave us for dead, although he had every right to in his holiness. God, instead of moving back from us, moves toward us in his compassion and his grace and his mercy, and he chased us down. And he did it physically, tangibly, in the person and work of his son, God incarnate, comes to earth, lives the perfect life that you and I failed to do. He's the better Jonah, he's the photo negative of Jonah, chasing after people who are unloved and unloving. He's he's doing that work, he's obeying entirely, and then he crawls up on a wooden cross and expires six hours later, rises from the dead, defeats death, all for what end, that God would be glorified in this, that you would be his, that you would be rescued from your Jonah heart. He came to die and rise to purchase for himself you and me, the Jonas of the world. That's what he came to do. It's the gospel. We fled from God, but God didn't flee from us. He pursued us. He always pursues us. He's pursuing you right now. I don't know if you know this, but you're in this room on purpose today by God. He's that sovereign. You're here because he is pursuing you. Whether you've known him for 50 years or you don't know him at all, he's still pursuing you with his love and compassion. I'll, I'll end with this story. I, uh, some of you know my, my story and my background. I, I dealt with um, since the age of nine, pornography addiction had been part of my story. And it sort of crippled me for about a decade. Just that struggle was real, and I, I'm, I, you know, I'll spare you the details, but um, I got saved right in the middle of that 10 year period. Uh, so I'm 15, uh, roughly at the time, 16. And, uh, and like it goes with, with most of us, um, when you get saved, it's not like the next day you wake up and you're like floating on a cloud and it's nirvana and you just love all your neighbors perfectly and you never sin again. That's not how it works. I woke up the next day and I was still tempted just like always and I hadn't developed the spiritual muscles to resist sin and, and, and chase Jesus and so I, I found myself a Christian now just struggling, just stumbling all the time. Uh, with this particular addiction. And, and it was just devastating me. And it, it was even harder on the other side of the cross, right? Because before I knew Jesus, uh, you know, que sera, sera. Just, I just, I didn't have a, a, a conviction about it. But on the other side of the cross, now I have the Holy Spirit in me. And, and he hates the things that I'm, I'm doing. I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. And, and there was one night toward the end of high school, I'm probably uh, 17 or so at the time, I just feeling so beat up. I'd stumbled again in sin. It was late. I was in my, my, my bedroom at the time, just feeling horrible about myself. I mean, it just and maybe for you, you can bring to mind that, that low moment in your life, because that, that was it for me. I, just, I, I remember just falling to my knees in the room and talking to God for what I really felt like was probably going to be the last time. It had gone that far. It was that deep. I was so that addicted, that entrenched. I was at the root of the mountains, like Jonah says in his prayer. I just remember telling God on my knees, God, I I am so low right now. This is so bad. I am being choked out by these sins. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. There's, There's no way that I'm your son. If you... If you're a God of long suffering, surely tonight is the night I've exhausted your patience. And so I remember telling him in my prayer, God, you have my permission, not that you need it, but you have it, you're free to go. But I get it, I wouldn't want to be with me either. It's so bad. And right then, interrupting my thought and my grief and my self-anger was a vision. I don't get visions. It never happened before. It hasn't happened since. But in this moment, God interrupted my script with a scene. And I just saw myself right there in my room kneeling on the ground. And all I saw in this little scene was the Lord Jesus Christ kneeling next to me and putting his hand on my back. And for five seconds, I just saw this. And it broke me. It broke me. I just began to weep. I wasn't weeping because I was more embarrassed or something, because, like, now he's here. I was weeping because how could you be here? Why would you be here in this moment, this dark moment? Why come... Here, when all I've been doing is running and fleeing from you, I'm at the, I'm at the bottom. And you you show up? And the answer of that scene is yes. That is where I meet people like you. I always come to the root of the mountain. I always come to the lowest point. That's the only point where anybody is. God dwells there with the weak and the lowly and the broken and the stumbling, he's after those people, which means he's after you, because we're all those people, whether we're deeply aware of it or not. We fled from God. God doesn't flee from us. I don't know where you are this morning. If you feel like you've been running from God forever, and you're just so, you're just looking up, and you can't even see him anymore. Like, where, where am I with respect to you? I have no idea. Can I just tell you? God doesn't run from you. He's here now, calling you now. That's what this sermon is for you now. Do you recognize this? This is God calling you to himself now, pursuing you. The cross of Christ is for you now. You haven't sunk too low. You haven't sunk too low. This is the story of the Christian, and it can be your story. Whether you've known him again for fifty years, or whether you've never known him, never cast yourself on him, you've only been the Jonah running, running, running your whole life. Cast yourself on the Lord, afresh, for the very first time, or just, just because you ha- you haven't drawn near to him in so long. He's there. He wants you. He will not flee. Come to him today. He's calling you. Repent and come. There is no place so low you could sink that God will not come. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I, I, I remember even just telling that story, just the grief I felt and just the lowness I felt and, uh, and I I know that that feeling is real in this room for maybe many of us. Maybe we're on the front end of that flight where we're just becoming skeptical about your plans for us as we're we're experiencing some hard things in our life. And maybe there's folks in the room today that are are just wondering, is God a God who can be trusted? Lord, even as we're praying right now, even as we worship you in song over these next moments, God, would you reinforce the truth that you can be trusted. You can be relied upon, God. We can cast ourselves on you. And God, if there are folks in this room or at home today who've just been running to Tarshish, they, they feel like they're 3,000 miles away from you, God, would you put your hand on their back through the person of Jesus? Will you remind them that the cross is for people just like them? Will you you bring them up out of the depths of the sea, out of the root of the mountains? Will you call them up? God, will you save them? I'm, I'm just gonna give whoever I'm talking about right now just a moment right where you're at. If that's you, to call on the Lord right where you're at and ask him to rescue you. Ask him to save you. Trust Jesus. I'll just give you just a moment or two to do that, if that's you. Father, I thank you for for every prayer that was prayed just now and for every new saint that is in your family. And Lord, we thank you for meeting us at the root of the mountain. We thank you, God. We love you. We need you. Meet us as we sing. Oh, Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts. Help us to believe the things that we don't believe. Help us to treasure the God that we pay lip service to. May it be heart service this morning. We love you. We love you. In his name, amen.